Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I first learned about Jim Bear Jacobs while reading an announcement in the Twin Cities Friends Meeting newsletter about the Sacred Sites Tours, which are led by Jim Bear and other Native Americans in the area around the Twin Cities of Minnesota. He is a founder and convener of Healing Minnesota Stories, and he's also a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation in central Wisconsin. Perhaps most relevant today is that Jim Bear Jacobs is currently the Director of Racial Justice for the Minnesota Council of Churches and a parish associate at the Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church. We'll be talking to him about all of these areas of his involvement in justice and healing in this region, but before we talk to Jim Bear, I want to share with you just a snippet of a song by the three-time Grammy Awards winner Bill Miller who is also a member of the Mohican Nation in Wisconsin. We're sharing a small part of Bill's song, Praises, to set the stage for today's visit with Jim Bear. Here's Bill Miller first, Praises. you for my children, the mountains and the streams. And I praise you for the eagle, the visions and the dreams. I praise you for my
That's just about a third of Bill Miller's song praises. I'd note that we have production assistance today from Andrew Jansen. Let's go now to Minneapolis, Minnesota via Zoom to speak with Jim Bear Jacobs. Jim, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be here, Mark. Do you have a lot of opportunities to talk to the media as part of your work with Minnesota Council of Churches, the Interfaith Power and Light? Yeah, it happens on occasion. It's not a regular part of my daily work, but yeah, on occasion. I understand that you're co-director of racial justice for Minnesota Council of Churches. What does that mean? What's the job description? You have to achieve racial justice for the entire state? Well, that's that's the hope. So at Minnesota Council of Churches, we are building a program centered around truth-telling, education, and ultimately reparations for Minnesota's uh, American Indian and African American communities. Our membership at the Minnesota Council of Churches is 27 different denominations across the state of Minnesota. Uh, it represents uh, well over a million people of the Christian faith in the state of Minnesota. And, you know, we know that Minnesota is one of the most uh, racially disparate states to live in the country. Minnesota is routinely voted in the top on lists as best places to live. However, the caveat is, is that is a very good place to live if you are a white person. It is one of the worst places to live if you are a person of color. And, you know, we have the recognition that many of our denominational members are overwhelmingly white. These are historic denominations with historic congregations here in Minnesota. And, you know, those churches were around when white supremacy was built in Minnesota. And many of those initial land grabbers, slaveholders, you know, would, I mean, they attended the churches here in Minnesota. And so, yeah, we are into a program and, and continuing to build a program that hopes to bring churches along into, I guess a good word for it is reparations ministry to make racial justice reparations as part of the fabric of their existence. I have been reading, following a lot of cases where people have been working on reparations. Actually, something that happened in Minnesota, someone I interviewed, I don't know what it was, eight years ago. He's Mennonite, and as part of his heritage, he passed on a couple hundred acres of the family farm. I think you're talking about John Stays. It sounds right. Yeah. Is he an exceptional case, if you can name him? Well, I, I know John personally. He's a friend of mine. And yeah, that has been a journey for him. Yeah, I mean, the situation was, is he was a co-inheritor of family land in southwestern Minnesota and has chosen to donate or yeah, I guess make reparations on his portion of the land that he inherited to find a way to give it back to indigenous communities in Minnesota. Yeah, and he is part of the the Mennonite church and has been deeply involved in the Mennonites' own journey towards racial justice and reparations, not just in Minnesota, but his case and a number of other cases are lifted up in some of the Mennonite literature across the nation as examples of how to consider reparations. 
How did that work in his case? I'm, it's far enough back in my memory that I'm having a hard time pulling it forward. But as I said, I'm looking for cases. How do you do reparations in some way that's useful, helpful, in some way removes some of the bridge that's been and the guilt? And it's sometimes it's guilt and sometimes responsibility. And sometimes it's just how do you do any healing? Because Minnesota healing work is part of what you're about. How does reparations work in that directions? Well, I think ultimately that person like, well, and I'll lift up John as an example, because as you said, I think, I mean, I think he is an exceptional example. It requires a shifting of mindset. A lot of people, like when we at the council here announced this program we were doing, a lot of people reached out and offered examples of what they were doing that they were calling reparations. But what they were doing was charity and reparations as we are defining it here at the Council of Churches, has to be separate from charity. It is different. Charity does not require any vulnerability. It does not require any risk. And charity is dependent on a power differential. And reparations, and this is what I tell people when I speak on reparations, reparations is going to require risk. It's going to require vulnerability. And it is going to require a shifting in power differentials. It is a release of that power and influence and a transfer of that power into communities of color and traditionally marginalized communities. So that's one thing I speak about when I when I speak to churches or denominations about reparations is that you don't get a pain-free path towards reparations. It's going to cost you something. You're going to feel it. And that particularly for the Christian faith communities that I speak to, this is the call of the gospel. You know, if we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter two, you know, he he says, you need to adopt the very nature of Christ, who was an equal with God, but didn't consider equality with God anything to be held. And he humbled himself, in a sense, he emptied himself of that power. And that is, I mean, that is the call of the gospel. So one of the benefits of working with faith communities is in large part, the faith communities have, you know, the Christian faith communities have all subscribed to a centralized belief system. You know, it's contained in their holy scriptures. And so, you know, part of what I do is I just come along and I say, well, let's look at what we already say we believe and find ways to live that out. One of my concerns has been that out of guilt, people can give money, might be charity, might be actually painful to the person to give it up. But my question is, will it do any good? Will it help? I actually knew someone who was part of a tribe, Eastern Wisconsin, who I worked with. And she talked about money she was getting from casinos, you know, stuff that was split amongst tribe members. Mm -hmm. Let's just say that my judgment, and I was sitting there watching how she's doing this, she was not doing good things. She ended up being a thief also and some other things. But, And I'm not generalizing this to everyone, but I'm just saying money that lands in your lap it can be used for good or bad. And that can be for rich people, poor people, powerful people, weak people. There's part of me that says when I'm going to take on some pain, I really would like it to be doing some good in the world. Sure, I see that. I see that. But also when we look at reparations as an obligation, I mean, you make your payments every month to the utility companies and to your cell phone company. 
and you have no qualms over how the CEOs of those companies spend your money. Oh, I do have qualms. Well, you have qualms, <laughs> but but not enough to stop paying and not enough to, you know what I'm saying? Like when we think of this as an obligation, that there has been injustice, there has been harm, and there's an obligation to make remuneration for that. And the fact of the matter is, is this country was built on the genocide of indigenous people, on the theft of indigenous land, and on the stolen labor of black enslaved bodies. And there's not a faction of our country that's more than 200 years old that does not trace a significant portion of their generational wealth right back to those two things. And those benefits continue. Reparations does not necessarily simply mean you're writing a check every month. You know, as we've discussed, you know, in this case with John, it's a return of land. It's a recognition that for generations, his family benefited from the theft of land of Dakota people, you know, and John is one who holds his faith very deeply. And, you know, he was part of my conversational circles as he was wrestling with this. And it's not like he made a rash decision and just said, oh, well, I'm just going to, here's the land, you know, but you do come to that. I mean, I guess I, I hear your argument very, very often. And to me, that sounds like an argument of someone who wants to maintain a high level of control over what happens. And as I said, reparations involves risk and vulnerability. And you cannot be in high risk and vulnerable and completely in control all at the same time. You have to relinquish control. Actually, my point is, I think reparations should be done. They must be done. I believe that. But the question is, how do you do them so that they do some good as opposed to doing more harm? Because people who win the lottery very frequently end up in a worse situation because they get their money that way. There's a human nature. How did John do his situation? And I'm partly inspired by something that I found out last couple of years that one of the Quaker meetings in uh, Philadelphia area did as part of their active reparations. They found a way to do it to give back to the community to, and, and they were taking from this big money that they had saved up that they had, had been handed down to the Quaker meeting for generations. They said, okay, we got to cut into this. We got to give it back. How can we do it? So it's the how of doing it in a way that's actually going to be helpful. That is my question. Yeah. And I think that that comes along with as part of building any reparations work, you have to do that in relationship. I mean, that's exactly what John did. He volunteered immense amounts of time to an organization called Makote Ikichupe, which is a Dakota land recovery organization. He built those relationships and there was trust. And that's ultimately kind of what led to his act of reparations. And that's what I think what I call churches into is I'm not asking churches to simply write a check. I mean, that potentially is part of it. But what I'm asking churches is, particularly with the American Indian community, since that's where my focus is, what I'm asking them to do is completely reimagine their relationship with American Indians. Because for many denominations and churches, the only contact with American Indians is as a mission field. You're sending your youth group out to our reservations for two weeks every summer to you know, hand out used clothes and paint church buildings and stuff. 
And that's the only contact you have with American Indians for many, many of these churches and denominations. And so what I say is I am not interested in being your mission field anymore. American Indian people, we don't need your salvation. It's been largely ineffective. It's been harmful to American Indian people. So I'm not interested in being your mission field, but let's build a relationship where instead of you coming to me with your good news, you invite me into your worship service and you begin to hear the good news from American Indian peoples and communities. Because this experiment in this uniquely Western brand of Christianity that America is so wrapped up in, it's not sustainable. And we're seeing that churches are closing their doors every single day in this country. Once vibrant worshiping communities are barely hanging on. I forget the statistics, but an overwhelming number of churches are going to close their doors in the next decade. So clearly, something is not sustainable. And what I say is, you know, look to the American Indian people. Stop bringing your sacred stories to us and saying, well, let me tell you what this says. But instead, invite us in, ask us what these stories mean, what they have to say. I'm not interested in being a church's mission field. I'm interested in being a theologian, a preacher, a teacher. That's what interests me. And as that relationship builds, you know, you build that trust. And so maybe now you're not simply writing a check blindly and you're worrying about, is it going to do any good? You've built that relationship and you know that person or that organization's heart and the good that they want from that. One of the things I read about on the website for Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light for the Council of Churches. So those are two different organizations. So I'm the the co-chair for the board of Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, but that is a separate entity from Minnesota Council of Churches, which is where I'm employed. The Reparation Learning Labs that happen roughly monthly, whose project are they and what do you do in in a Reparation Learning Lab? Yeah, so those are, I don't even know if they've launched yet, but they are, and it's like an idea. It's it's a think tank kind of thing. And this really has been the work of some of the very dedicated staff of Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light. We are seeing these programs for reparations kind of popping up across, well, certainly across the Twin Cities here in Minnesota, but with a statewide and some even a, a nationwide proposed focus. And so we have the Reparations Learning Labs at Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light. There's another organization that has developed a curriculum called Sacred Reckonings, which is all about moving congregations through a process to ultimately make reparations as part of their functioning ministry, as part of their budget. And so we're seeing that and you know, and we are we have our own reparations work group here at the Minnesota Council of Churches that you know we're trying to build the process for churches to engage in in the work of reparations. I think it's somewhat understandable that so much of this work is happening in Minnesota. I mean, just over 3 years ago now the murder of George Floyd, which was such a public spectacle, you know, Minnesota became the epicenter really for racial justice work and um it is out of that murder of George Floyd that the Council of Churches, our own Truth and Reparations program was built. And we see a lot of this work coming up now as a 
very considered and thought out response to what is the responsibility for white people? What is the responsibility for faith communities? Because, you know, when George Floyd took his last breath and the entire world saw it, you can't ignore the problem anymore. I wish that were true, because I do see an awful lot of people who are very deliberately ignorant, refuse to look at facts, concern about that. Well, deliberate ignorance is not true ignorance. It takes a willful act to not be aware now. Yes, it does. I'm just started reading the book, Reclaiming the Gospel from the Cowboys. I assume you know what I'm speaking of. Yeah, Richard Quist. Yeah, and I'm trying to learn from that some of the steps to get where we want to go. And this is, again, how can I, as a person, I don't think I have any Native American blood in me. Yeah, I'm mainly a British Isles mutt, right? That's, that's Given that I've got that background, how do I participate in, listen to, befriend, accompany, all of those kinds of things? If someone wants to start doing that kind of partnership and partnership from the listening side, how do we do that? And I'm in Wisconsin. I understand you're from the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation, Wisconsin. You're in Minnesota now in the Twin Cities area. And, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota have been progressive states historically. Minnesota is still leading and has passed up Wisconsin at this point. But that doesn't mean we're going to make a, a lot of progress. I mean, I understand that just this year, Minnesota passed the Indian Family Preservation Act. I don't even know what the content of that is, but it's like, okay, well, maybe Minnesota's going to lead the way on some of these things. There's relationship and listening that has to happen. How does a person get involved in this? Yeah, I think it takes a fair amount of, not even a fair amount, it takes a certain amount of research to just find out what is happening locally in your area. There are 11 tribes in Minnesota. There are 11 tribes in Wisconsin. So wherever you are in either of those states, you're probably no more than two hours away from an American Indian reservation. But also in our larger metropolitan areas, certainly the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Madison, Milwaukee, and Wisconsin, there are vibrant indigenous communities. And those communities are going to have organizations and people that are working for the betterment of their own communities, but also organizations and peoples that are working for the betterment of just trying to level the playing field on racial justice. And certainly colleges and universities are a great place to try to get a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the arena of racial justice. And honestly, that generation, the young people are you know, we're seeing the visioning, we're seeing the beautiful creativity come out of those communities. And then from there, it just, you know, it requires a certain amount of listening, humility, putting aside one's own ego and just being willing to be taught and to learn. You know, in Minnesota, we have an advantage of, you know, our lieutenant governor is a native woman and we have uh, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice, who's American Indian woman. So we're seeing American Indian peoples really kind of making strides into those seats of power. And I think fittingly, it is so incredibly beautiful to see that many of these positions are filled by Native women. You know, at the national level, 
Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, another Native woman. For myself, as an Indigenous person, but also particularly as a man, you know, it's refreshing. It's refreshing, and it's also a time of my own interrogation, right? And I think this is just a lesson in privilege in general, whether it's white privilege or male privilege, that it's time to give voice to the powerful women in our communities. And, And so I think, you know, you ask, well, you know, how does one get involved? How does one form those relationships? And, you know, it just requires a humility and it requires an understanding that you are coming into these circles, not because you have answers that you are offering, but because you legitimately want to learn and you want to learn what is my role? What role can I fulfill in making justice? And, you know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to misstep. It's just the the nature of any kind of cross-cultural relationship. You're going to misstep. And how you handle yourself in those missteps is key because you can either get very defensive and shut off, close yourself in, or you can take your correction, you can learn from it and hope to do better next time. And that's, I mean, that's what's required. We're going to learn more about that from Jim Bear Jacobs in a moment. He's my guest here today for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll find some links to some of the ways that Jim Bear Jacobs is active as co-director of Racial Justice for the Minnesota Council of Churches, active with Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, and he is also... Yeah, I've seen it written a couple different ways, but as a parish associate or parish pastor at Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church, I want to talk to you about all of those things. But I do have those links on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, along with links to all of my guests of the past 18 years. So you can track down, connect up, make your first steps towards listening better and being part of healing for the nation. I'm also going to be talking to Jim about the Sacred Sites Tour, which he's co-facilitated. That's how I got in touch with you, Jim. I saw the announcements in the Twin Cities Friends Meeting newsletter a number of times when you were doing the site tours. And so that made me feel like I need to get a hold of you because this is one piece of my education that I need to add into. So, folks, on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, please post a comment on this interview, on other interviews you listen to, ideas of people I should be talking to. All of these things will be good to help our conversation become two-way. You can donate to support us. We don't take money from corporations nor from government, but from our listeners. We want to be serving the needs of our listeners, and so it's important to pay attention where our support's coming from. And you can be part of that if you wish, and also please support the local community radio stations. you got some good ones right there in the Twin Cities. I'm really happy to know that they're putting the word out there. And again, there's some 35-plus stations nationwide that carry programs from Northern Spirit Radio. They deserve your support because they're not following a simple hierarchical order of what they're supposed to promote. They're listening on a community level. And so please support them. Make sure the word gets out. Again, Jim Baird Jacobs, and the place you're going to mainly find him is with respect to Minnesota Council of Churches. We've got that link. Interfaith, Power and Light. And both of these cases, I was 
wondering, you you said that there is X number of Christian-related communities. My understanding is the word ecumenical refers to Christian churches, to Christian churches. Interfaith goes beyond Christianity. Does Minnesota Council of Churches, the Interfaith Power and Light, do they extend past Christianity, or what's that? How's that focus go? Yeah, Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light is just that. It's interfaith. It's reaching into Jewish, Muslim communities, various other communities, trying to build on eco-justice work and also racial justice and indigenous sovereignty rights. The Minnesota Council of Churches, we have strong interfaith relationships within the Muslim communities and the Jewish communities. And so that work is being done. The membership of the Minnesota Council of Churches, though, it is, I mean, it is a Christian faith-based organization. Okay, that clarifies for me what I was wondering about. We talked about John's move towards reparations, personal. Are, are there other examples you can give of that in action, uh, historical or coming up, with respect to folks in Minnesota or Wisconsin? I, since you're from here originally, you probably know. So we're seeing some of these steps. I mean, you know, these congregations and denominations, they're big ships and it takes quite a while to steer, to change course. I mean, I serve at a Presbyterian church and I mean, it's it's an inside joke that to get any little thing changed, you know, it's going to require about three years of committee meetings and a number of votes and all of that. I mean, it's, it's not that bad, but it's not that far off. You do know the statement. A committee is a group of people who takes hours to produce minutes. Yeah. You've been there. <laughs> yep. We are seeing congregations that are dedicating a portion of their budget, their annual budget every year, to reparations work for Black and Indigenous communities. There is a congregation in the southern Twin Cities here called Oak Grove Presbyterian Church, and they spent probably the better part of a year in relationship and collaboration with people who are in the reparations and justice field. And they are set to kind of roll out a significant plan for their particular congregation to engage in reparations. And I mean, they did a pretty extensive study. If I'm remembering correctly, they did a total assessment of their total wealth So things like investments, land holdings, the value of buildings, you know, things like that. And I forget where they landed, but I think what they're moving towards is that a percentage of their total wealth will be dedicated to reparations. So we are seeing some of those steps, right? And we recognize that this work by nature is a long, it is a process. It's not a, you know, I cannot come in and give you the formula of how, you know, everything will be made right. But it is a process. It's sometimes it's trial and error, but you know, we're seeing movement, which is encouraging. I want to talk about a number of other portions of the work of your life, of your being. Here's a, a little bit of a strange little detour. Your name, Jim Bear Jacobs. Bear is not a name that those of us from Ireland usually have come up with. But we do have this practice, when you get confirmed, you take on a confirmation name. That was a practice. I grew up Catholic. I've been 
Quaker basically all my adult life. But taking names, and I understand when someone converts to Islam, taking a new name is a pretty traditional kind of thing. Where does the name Bear come from, and what does it mean in your case? I mean, do you connect with that name? Does it feel like it describes you? Was it something your parents gave to you? Yeah, so it's a very interesting story. So my grandmother was the youngest of all of her siblings. Her father and a number of her older siblings, so my great-grandfather and a number of great-aunts and uncles, were what we call Hollywood Indians. They were in show business. And everyone had their name, like their birth name, and then almost everyone had a name that they were known by in the community that was not related at all to their birth name. And I I don't mean that in any sense, like these are spiritually derived names or anything. These, these were just nicknames that everyone was known by, right? And so my great-grandfather, his name was Philip Tausi. His stage name was Chief Two House or Chief Two Houses, as he was sometimes. And he was in Gene Autry films. He had um, a vaudeville act. You know, he was in TV and radio. They were in the circus, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey's, you know, in these circuses. So there was one of my great uncles was named Gerald. And it's a complicated name because when you read it, you want to say Gerald, like you want to do the soft G, but it was Gerald. But his stage name was Jim Bear, or that's just his nickname was Jim Bear. My father was named after that uncle of his. So my father's name is Gerald, but everyone, everyone knows him as Bear. That's what he's known as. So when it came time for me to be born, my father wanted to pass on the name Gerald to me and made the suggestion. And my mother vetoed that. And she said, Gerald is a stupid name. It's spelled weird. (laughs) Nobody knows how to pronounce it. Everyone calls you Gerald that doesn't know you. And we're not going to do that to our son. But what we will do, we can do, is we will just name him James Bear. And we can just call him Jim Bear after my great uncle and in honor of, you know, following somewhat of a namesake of my father. So my middle name is Bear. My government name is James Bear Jacobs. And so that's how I come about that name. And my mom, you know, this was the 70s when I was born. My mom had to fight for that name because the nurses who came in to fill out the birth certificate, you know, and I was born in the Twin Cities. So I was not in a particularly American Indian context. You know, the nurses came in to fill out the birth certificate and they're like, and what's the name? And they said, James Bear. And the nurse is like, we'll come back later when you've thought about this. Oh, no. I think they thought she was still under the influence of, I don't know, pain meds or something. And so she, she tells me, she like grabbed the nurse by the collar, pulled her in close and said, his name is James Bear, write it down. So the nurse <laughs> wrote it down. And I think the way my mom tells the story as she was the nurse was leaving. She just gave that gentle reminder. You have up to three days to change your mind, you know. My name being raised, born, whatever, uh, was Mark Allen Judkins. And Mark, of course, is this biblical name, right? One of the Gospels and so on. There could be weight that one takes by having a name, right? When I considered my confirmation name, for instance, I considered Bartholomew, but that was at the time that Bart Starr was also with the Packers. And I said, no, I think I better not go that direction. I don't know. Does James Bear carry any weight for you? Oh, it certainly does. I mean, I am known as Jim Bear. And a lot of times when I, if I sign 
you know, an email or something, I will just, I won't put a space between my first and, mid- and middle name. So it's just Jim Bear. Uh, to tell you, it makes you stand out really well on Google. I mean, you're not going to find hardly any other Jim Bears out there. So people remember my name. I mean, you know, and the fact that some aspect of Bear as a family name, you know, I'm the third generation, my firstborn son has the middle name Bear. So it's it's now four generations old. It has meaning like it carries significance for me. And, you know, it's it wasn't necessarily easy growing up. You know, I grew up in the Twin Cities here. So going to elementary and middle school in, in white suburbia, and you're the kid with the animal name. And I remember there was, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade, there was one other student who had the name Bear, but it was a last name. And it was the German spelling uh, of Bear, you know, and I was like, nice try, buddy, but you, you'll you never be as cool as me. <laughs> uh, uh, well, there's a couple more things I want to get into before we finish our hour. One is that you, at least at times, have been parish pastor or parish associate. I don't know how this all works at the Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church. The history I read online was that it started in 2004, and most of the founders of it are Christians of Korean immigrant church in Minneapolis. They moved uh, eventually to Shiloh Bethany, Grace Presbyterian Church, and then they ended up merging something. Could you tell that story? Because I really wonder how you do authentic non-mainline, you know, the mainline story, the, that of the cowboys that I mentioned before, how you do that in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Church of All Nations is an incredibly beautiful community. And you are correct. It did start in the Korean Presbyterian Church. And it started as the English ministry service for the Korean Presbyterian Church. So Presbyterian Church in Korea is a fairly large denomination. And so as Korean immigrants moved to the United States, just like with any kind of immigrant community, they sought a unique worship experience that kind of tied them into that familiarity. And so they were the English ministry. It was, it was the English service for a Korean Presbyterian church. And our founding pastor, Jin S. Kim himself is a Korean immigrant immigrated from Korea when he was, I believe, eight years old, you know, as a young child, and did, you know, traditional seminary work, doctoral work. But really, I I think kind of the way he tells it is he had a community of entirely homogenous people. Now, it wasn't homogenous in the sense that it's an all-white congregation. I mean, it was almost entirely a Korean congregation, but it's a homogenous organization. And he felt the call that the gospel actually moves us out into the world and that people need to find their own expression culturally and faithfully. And so the the church, and this is this is all happening before I am part of the community, but the church itself went into this time of discernment and they emerged from this discernment deciding that they would name themselves Church of All Nations and then work tirelessly to actually live into that name. And so if you come and visit our community now, we have People from different nationalities from all over the world. I think at last count, it was something like 35 different ethnicities or nationalities represented in our worshiping community. And we're not, we're not a large 
congregation, maybe 150 people. So to have 35 different nationalities, there is a significant portion. Yeah, and it's a community that is is dedicated to reclaiming the gospel. You know, as you're saying, you know, Richard Twist's work, rescuing the gospel from the cowboy. It's dedicated to examining scripture in a decolonizing way, examining community life in a decolonizing way, bringing health and restoration to people's spirits, to the earth. One project we undertook maybe right pre-pandemic, so what, four years now, but it's a continuing project, is a permaculture project. So we ripped up all of the Kentucky bluegrass or whatever we had on our church property. We planted orchards, sustainable ground cover, stuff that actually doesn't extract from mother earth but like restores nutrients and health to the soil big gardens you know to feed the community we have a number of communal houses in the neighborhood where people can live together in community and i know you know sometimes like we we see that and people from our generation you know we're, we're thinking back to the failed hippie experiments you know of communal living but it's really it's not like that, but it's not entirely not like that. Maybe closer to what happened in Acts? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing where people have their gifts that they bring forth, what they're talented in, and you recognize that not everyone is necessarily like financially on an on a equal playing field. I mean, there's some people with corporate jobs and there's some people with blue collar jobs. And, you know, you're sharing a house together and the amount financially, at least, that you contribute to the household is really kind of dependent. And it, it, it's arrived at communally, and it works. Yeah, and it, it's it's a very beautiful community. It's, it, it's, a, it's a community that, you know, I grew up Christian, so I have been in various churches literally, you know, for 46 years now. This is the only church I've ever been in where I, I've never felt that I have to hide my Native identity and what that entails or how I approach creator or spirit. And not only do I have I never had to hide it, but it's actually celebrated as part of the community. And so as a pastor, I am written into the end of life uh, requests of certain congregation members who want me, should they pass or, or be close to passing, they want me to come in and and smudge them, you know, with my eagle feathers and the sage smoke and that. And these are non-native people. But they feel that connection because I have been invited to bring those elements of ritual into our worship service. And so there are there are times when if we're going to take the sacrament of communion, you as a visitor or a, a participant are given the option. You can come stand in line in front of me and I'll wipe you down with my eagle feathers and, and smudge you down. And, and you know, this these are non-native people, but they feel a connection that the churches they grew up in just just could not provide. And again, all of this is happening because of the blessing of the Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church in the Twin Cities. One of the things I found very interesting, and I, I, I've been wrestling with it but haven't found an answer, and so hopefully you'll enlighten me. It's kind of a, a tagline or a motto or something for the church is that you're a high-risk low anxiety church. And I think you've blown my mind. So tell me what that means. High risk just means that we invite you into a radical faith. When done right, it's going to shake your comfort zones. It's going to, you know, it's going to maybe crumble some foundations because we name things like white supremacy, 
We name things like the faults of Western ideologies and how incompatible capitalistic Western ideologies are with living a true life of faith. It's high risk, but it's low anxiety. We don't invite you into an anxious lifestyle. We invite you into healing. We invite you into a community that heals. Some people come for a season, find healing, and you know maybe their job or careers takes them elsewhere in the country. But you know we maintain that connection, and they are a blessing to us, and as we have been a blessing to them. And I mean, when you're living in true community. And really, right, this is this is the lesson we can get from indigenous from indigenous people who never settled into that wildly individualistic lifestyle that the so-called American dream calls us into. But when you're living in community, you're free to experiment. You're free to explore. Yeah. So I mean, we're a community. We we have entrepreneurs in our community, you know, that have started their own businesses and then devote a portion of profits back into the community. So we've got, as I said, church was founded uh, out of the Korean church. So we've got a young man, Korean young man, who started uh, his own hot sauce company because he kind of missed his mom's cooking. And so it's called K-Mama Sauce. It's a Korean hot sauce and it is delicious. It's fantastic. And, you know, we've seen him grow that from literally pulling bottles of hot sauce out of the trunk of his car at farmer's market to now being in major retailers featured on you know local tv shows and this that's great we also have another entrepreneurial business that makes like healing lotions and hand creams and stuff lip balm all out of the stuff we grow from our grounds uh permaculture stuff so that harvest it you know and it's it's a community effort you know it's part of a sunday school lesson they'll get the the, the kids out there learning when is the time to harvest certain things. And, you know, we're, we're not a farm. Like we are, we're literally just a few acres in a residential suburb, you know, but a lot of visioneering went into like how we can, just how we can live a better way. That last business, again, I, I said, I don't take corporate money, but this is, I'll make an exception to make an ad here for Silver Lake Botanicals. Correct. And you can find that via the website for the Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church. I've got the link on northernspiritradio.org. I wish I had more time with you, but the reason that brought me here was because I wanted to know about sacred site tours. Yeah. And again, you've been part of this. How long has this been going? What do you do? And who participates in this? Who are the people who are going on the tour? So I started this 12 years ago. I started it 12 years ago because probably about 15 years ago, I went on a tour of some of the really significant indigenous sites here in the Twin Cities. And I came away with a sense of shame because I had grown up in the Twin Cities. I had been to these sites a number of times and I never knew the indigenous story of these sites. And it took a Dakota man who was a friend of mine to bring me through these places to learn this story. And that sense of shame of not knowing led me into action. And so I started listening to Dakota storytellers, listen to Dakota historians, reading various books. I just felt I mean, Mark, my home is here. I've lived here my whole life. I owe it to the indigenous people to know their story. And I, you know, I wondered, like, is this something that people would find interesting? I found it 
deeply fascinating. I found it very powerful to just to have my feet touching the earth in these places where such rich history was held, both beautiful history and deeply tragic history. And so I started asking around my Dakota friends and I started asking permission to see if this was something that could potentially be beneficial for Dakota people. And eventually received permission from elders from the four Dakota communities in Minnesota. And so we, I started doing these sacred sites tours in 2011. I honestly thought that by the end of 2012, I would have exhausted the audience. Like anyone who was interested in learning this stuff would have learned it. And that by 2013, I would have to find something else to do with my my energy. And I have never been more wrong. The interest just keeps building. We are, you know, here I am almost 13 years out from it or 12 years out from it and busier now than I've ever been. We run these tours from basically mid-April to mid-November. I mean, there are times we're doing three of them a week. Our audience is started primarily with churches and faith communities. People wanted to kind of just learn about the history of where the indigenous history of you know where they are we have had groups from every college and university campus in the twin cities we've been making in the last few years been making entry into the medical field we're getting i mean i've had 120 pediatricians and pediatric residents out there i've had 70 psychology and psychiatry residents so we're making entry into into the medical field we're seeing groups who are hearing about it from Georgia to Washington to Washington State, you know, and if they're coming through the Twin Cities, they want to do it. It's been written up in a couple of books. And I, and I say this not to try to build myself up because, I mean, Mark, I am more surprised than anyone that it is what it is. And I just feel so honored to be able to do this and lead people through this. And I mean, the feedback we're getting is that this is. Like this is ground shaking for people. It's transformational. I mean, I hear from people seven years later, let's say I still regularly think about that experience I had. If people want to get involved with this, uh, travel with, learn from, how do they do it for the, and again, this is part of healing Minnesota stories, the, the sacred sites tour. How do they connect with that? People can reach out to me directly at the Minnesota Council of Churches. My email address is jimbear.jacobs at mnchurches.org. Folks can reach out to me there. We're about to close the season for this year, but come next spring, we will open it back up. Are you saying that there's no sacred sites in the winter? I, I just, I think there's a lot of sacred stuff goes on then. There is a lot of sacred stuff that goes on, but the tour is four hours long and if you're going to make me stand and tell stories for four hours in zero degree weather, it's not going to be fun. Not as fun. It's... <laughs> but we're about to close the season, but certainly next spring and into summer and fall next year, there'll be many opportunities. We will put a couple of what we call open tour dates on the calendar, which is just individuals can register for those. So people can watch, go to, go to, um, the uh, Minnesota Council of Churches website 
and access the Healing Minnesota Stories page on there. When we schedule those dates, those will show up there and folks can register that way. Uh, otherwise, if they have a group, if you want to do this as a group, we, I mean, we do book private group tours as well. Sounds wonderful. Is this something that's unique in Minnesota? Because again, my listeners for Spirit in Action are all over the country. Are there people doing this elsewhere? Are they learning from you? Are you learning from them? I have not heard. Well, I mean, things like this are happening elsewhere somewhat. But there's us and there's there's another organization here in the Twin Cities. The Minnesota Humanities Center uh, does something similar. Uh, in fact, we utilize some of the same sites. And what I've heard from a number of people is that we are kind of unique in how we approach this. And so I know that you can go to other parts of the country and learn about some of the indigenous history and, and kind of this place-based storytelling. But from what I've heard from a number of people is that there's something that's unique about what we do here. And I don't even know if I could actually qualify what that uniqueness is, but there's something. I know this is a bit of a strange way to end this. Do people normally call you Jim or Jim Bear? Jim Bear. So I should have been addressing you as Jim Bear. That's all right. Yeah. And I apologize for not checking with you earlier, but That's all right. I'm pleased to know you, Jim Bear. And folks, uh, we've been speaking with Jim Bear Jacobs. He's co-director for of racial justice for Minnesota Council of Churches, active part of the leadership for Minnesota Interfaith Power and Life. And he's Paris associate, Paris pastor for the Church of All Nations Presbyterian Church. I've got links to those and the Sacred Sites Tour information from the website. All of those are on nordenspiritradio.org, but we're still just scratching the surface. And I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me, Jim Bear. And I really hope to talk to you and actually I hope to participate in one of the tours in the next year. Thanks so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Good to talk to you. Again, all the links are on nordenspiritradio.org. Follow up with via those links. Contact Jim Bear. And we hope to see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh